everybody. Welcome to this new podcast of the American Journal of Public Health. Our March uh, 2022 issue is about uh, achieving health equity. And we thought that a great discussion would be uh, to talk about the contribution and legacy of Professor Zina Stein. Zina Stein just left us. Uh, she passed away in November of last year. She was a an activist, anti-apartheid, she was an epidemiologist, she was a public health person. And uh, I'm very lucky because I have here with me two persons who knew her very well and with whom we are going to uh, have this conversation. And I'm going to ask them to introduce themselves so that if you are only on the audio, you recognize the voice, even though here it won't be too complicated. And and just tell us, you know, what was their relationship uh, to uh, Zina Stein? So, Kareshe Abdul Karim, welcome to this podcast. Great to see you again. Thank you, Alfredo. And it's wonderful to be with you and with Mitchell Warren. I'm Kiresha Abdul Karim, and what was my relationship with Zina? Well, where do I begin? Probably in 1988, when I was doing my master's in the School of Public Health at Columbia University, Zina was my supervisor and mentor. And I think if you ever interacted with Zina, whether it was for a few minutes, a few hours, a few days, you know what you form with her is a lifelong bond. So that bond straddled over 34 years. It started off with a mentor-mentee type relationship. Over the course of about a decade, it switched to being a collaborator and then a deep friend and, and family member. And, and, and right to the very end, my last interaction with her was in September 23rd when I visited her in Pennsylvania. And we were planning to be celebrating a 100th birthday, little knowing this would be our final interaction. And as usual, it was starting with the science. What's new? Ah, not doing enough. Where are we? Then it would go on to family and friends. And then it would go on to making sure that I had adequate supplies of round cheese, peppermint crisp, and rooibos tea. So let's just say it straddled everything. It's not yeah, everything you said about her, the many facets of her life is true, but just to extend that. Thanks. Fantastic. Thank you very much, Corisha. And Mitchell Warren, welcome. And uh, also let us know what was your connection to Zina. Th thank you so much, Alfredo. And it's wonderful to see you and, and Corisha. Um, and actually, I, I hadn't realized we, we must have been about a year apart, Corisha. I'm Mitchell Warren and I, I direct AVAC and have worked in HIV prevention now for over 30 years, and, and I can really say it's Just almost... Just tell us what's AVAC. Just uh, tell us what's a AVAC. AVAC is a, a non-profit organization focused on the development and eventual delivery of new HIV prevention methods. And I can say full well that had I not met Zena and Mervyn together in 1989, um, I was actually just out of undergraduate in my very first job, I would never have imagined the career uh, that they really opened up for me. And um, although I, I, I did uh, start a program in public health, I ended up never finishing it because I, I moved to South Africa where I got to work with Croatia in 1993. And, and that too wouldn't have happened had it not been for, for Zena and Mervyn. And I look back in each of the organizations I've been in, and one in particular, the female health company, um, wouldn't exist in the technology, the female condom that 
I spent a lot of my career in wouldn't exist had it not been for, for her vision, for uh, her advocacy, for her science, and most of all, for, for her voice in your head all the time. Um, are you doing enough? Are you, are you asking the right questions? Are you making best use of the answers of those questions? And I, I still hear her in my head, uh, honestly, all these years later. Um, and it's a thrill every time I hear it and a great reminder of why we do this work. That's great. Thank you very much, Michelle and Karisha. So, I mean, I just want to say for our listeners that uh, Mervyn Susser was uh, Zinerstein's husband. He was also an epidemiologist. But they both came from South Africa and they had to leave. Can you tell us about their story while they were in South Africa? So I can start, Alfredo, and say that Mervyn actually was born in Waterberg, which is in a province, one of the northern provinces in South Africa. Zina was born in Durban, South Africa. Her dad was a professor in mathematics at the University of Natal, as it was then known. And her mom was a, what we would call these days a home executive. But there is a striking thing about Zina's mom is she was very, very active in the Jewish community. And around just after, I think, or just before the First World War, there were a lot of Eastern Europeans who arrived in South Africa from countries like Latvia, etc. And her mother immediately was the person they'd go to if they came to Durban. And so she would be the ones hosting recent arrivals to the city. They were largely immigrants and, uh, and, and migrants leaving a situation not too different from what we're seeing in Ukraine today. And I think Zina learned a lot about social justice from her mom. I think her, her knack for numbers and precision, and that came from her dad. But Zina met Mervyn when she was quite little because Mervyn had to come to school in Durban and he went to Durban uh, uh, the DPHS, the Durban Primary School for Boys, and was very good friends with two of her brothers. And Zina would tail along everywhere the boys went, she would be right behind. But their romance didn't kick off till they accidentally met just after the Second World War, where Zina, who had just completed her master's in history at the University of Cape Town, had volunteered to be a nurse and do some of these assessments that were being done to soldiers and Mervyn had joined the Air Force and they reconnected there and from there Zina said, what are you doing now that the war is over? We're both going to medical school and they went off to the University of Vatvatisrand. So there were students there in the 50s and that was also a time of great political mobilization in South Africa. It was time of Nelson Mandela, Walter Sisulu, Ahmed Katrada, and others, and a real um, a push at that time to deal with the apartheid system. And that, that period led to the imprisonment of many people, including Mandela. And uh, Mervyn and Zina had set up a clinic uh, just outside Johannesburg called the Alexandra Health Clinic. Before then, they had already working with someone called Sidney Carr, who's the father of primary health care, learned about how do you document these disparities that were existing. And part of their work in the anti-apartheid movement 
led to them being under observation by the security forces. They got wind of that and they left the country very quietly one evening with their children and went to Manchester. So that's the sort of history, schooling in South Africa. Both of them are South Africans. They had to leave or face imprisonment. They chose to leave. They left and they went to Manchester initially where Zina was working nights in the psychiatric wards and doing some of her child development work. And then they got recruited at Columbia University. And I think when they came to Columbia University and Mervyn started to formalize the science of epidemiology and Zina working alongside the Dutch famine work starting, I think we can say the rest is history. But that's the South African background, that piece around public health that piece around social justice and and always knowing what is the right thing to do. I don't know, that kind of unique wisdom was some way in the DNA, I'd say, right at the outset, growing up in South Africa, not just witnessing these atrocities, but and not just being silent witnesses, but being active in addressing it and, and working towards changing society. Huge thing in the 90s to start. Karesha, Karesha, just just a question. Which year did they leave South Africa? It was around 1957, I would say. Okay, and and they they got to Colombia in the 60s. Yes. So, so Mitchell, you come after. You come when they were at Colombia. Well, and it's interesting. You know, I I remember so vividly the day I met them. I, I was in 1989 at a small meeting of the American College of Physicians. And I was just out of my undergrad working for an organization called Medical Education for South African Blacks that was working to train black South Africans in all the health sciences. And and the the founders of the organization who were uh, Herb and Joy Kaiser, they were contemporaries of, of Mervyn and Zena, couldn't go to the meeting and they sent me and I had no idea what to expect. And I rock up and there is Mervyn always with his ascot, I'll never forget, and Zena, and, and we were meant to talk to the American College about training South Africans. And they were not huge fans of me, Seb, at the time. And, and I was incredibly nervous. And they knew that. And yet it was a day spent talking about human rights, about social justice. And it's interesting, you know, that, Carissa, you mentioned their Jewish upbringing. I entered this entire work because of my own Jewish upbringing and this idea of tikkun olam, that every individual can contribute to, to bringing, um, uh, you know, better opportunity to the world. And and they were such inspirations there because even though their their philosophy and approach to training was different than Misab's, they recognized that we were all in this together. We all had something to contribute. And, and it was so profound that they allowed this 22-year-old kid to share a platform with them. And I'll never forget the, those conversations and the wisdom, as you say, Karesha, about what it meant to to go do and 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 to actually try to contribute in in any way, big or small. And I think one of the most important lessons, something we all know that, that there are major changes in the world, but they almost always come down to, to small acts of individuals, but that when coming together, make significant social change. And they knew that. They knew that while it may be one paper uh, or one conference presentation, which I know Chris and I both uh, are influenced greatly by in terms of Zena's um, really pioneering work in changing, I think, how many of us thought about HIV came down to an article, a conference presentation, but it created a movement. Um, and those things begin literally with that little, you know, pebble dropping and, and the ripples that Zena still makes to this day. Yeah, yeah. I mean, they were, they were uh, 
absolutely superb scientist, extremely influential, extremely creative. I mean, both uh, Zina and Mervyn. And still, they never stop being activists and, and try to change things. And so uh, they were remarkable in this way. I just want to recall that uh, the HIV epidemic uh, began in 1981. In 1983, we knew it was a virus, and then it went very fast because people thought it was first a disease of the gay men only, where, I mean, all the data showed otherwise, but there was a lot of uh, stigma and discrimination. So when did uh, Zina found the HIV center in uh, at Columbia, and what was the impact of this center? Can you tell us about maybe Carisha? Yeah, so the HIV center was founded around 1987. And I think that in the first few years of the pandemic, uh, you know, it did take us, unlike COVID, SARS-CoV-2, where, you know, within weeks, we were able to sequence the virus, know its relationship, with COVID and all of that. With HIV, it took us a few years to isolate the virus, find the relationship between the virus and AIDS. And I think once that uh, discovery happened around 85, and then the diagnostic tests was put into place, there was, um, Anka Erhard was actually uh, on one of the committees the, at um, the NIH. And, and part of those discussions was the need to set up centers of excellence and a more systematic approach to this. And there was uh, interest to set um, up such a center in New York City. And that's not surprising given the epidemic that was unfolding in New York City at that stage in Greenwich Village, East Village, also in Harlem and the Bronx, etc. And so when she spoke to the principal of Columbia University, he said, well, if you're going to set up such a center, you have to have a few other people with you. And one of them has to be Zena Stein. And uh, rolled out all the reasons you need a good epidemiologist here. And Zena at that stage was the chair of the Department of Epi. And so that's how Anka and Zena got together and set established the HIV center, and, and, and that's the beginning of it. And, and part of Zena's work, I think, is um, Anka jokes about this, how, um, you know, officially Zena was supposed to be the co-director of the center. But Zena said, I don't direct anything, I just do. And the wonderful <laughs> stories of, uh, of Zena, you know, immediately thinking, beyond the epidemic that was unfolding in men who have sex with men to saying, what about the drug users? And what about mother to child transmission? And then started to join the dots way before everybody else. That's the visionary that Mitchell was talking about. is say, well, you know, we have abstinence. We have behavior change of mutually faithful monogamy. We have the male condom. But if you're a woman and you're at risk of getting HIV, what do you have? Nothing. <laughs> and so that was the AGPH commentary in 1990, calling for virucides at that stage. But, you know, that's translated to microbicides. But she identified this gap way before anybody had women on the agenda. And simultaneously, she was also looking at the mother-to-child transmission issue which she worked with Louise Kuhn and, and Jerry Kovadia, 
and and her links then always with her networks everywhere and and so you know us returning to south africa slim and myself starting to quantify hiv in south africa her making the link between what was happening in the new york so there's been this the hiv center has been an important link and glue between the department of ap and what the school of public health was doing and what was happening in south africa what was happening in africa and then you know, it extended uh, beyond um, in, in globally, sort of, yeah. these are the issues, this is what needs to be done. And that's that unique wisdom we are talking about. And the vision to put these on the table and then change the entire landscape. So she was doing dealing with this at a scientific level. What is the science that's needed? And I remember in 1992, 1992, after we found out in South Africa that women were uh, had more infection than men and getting infected earlier, like all those studies we did in peri-urban populations, urban, rural, and then we say, coming to, the, like, who who has a microbicide? Then we were talking about repurposing things, and anoxanol 9 was very much high there because it was a licensed vaginal contraceptive. At the same time, she also had a finger in the pie in terms of the female condom. So when you think about it, here's somebody juggling a whole lot of other signs uh, in psych, EP, and so on. Same time in HIV. In HIV, I can't even begin to list all the things. If we had time, lots of time, we'd do it. But we focus on the women issue, the two things, the female condom, and then the microbicides from there. And then Alex will tell you that he said, but what about men? They also need something. And she brought a proctologist on board. And Suddenly, we're dealing with rectal microbicides, vaginal microbicides, female condom, yeah. And I want to stress that this was very early, too, because uh, uh, the, one of the reasons why it took so long to actually identify the virus is that, in contrast to SARS-CoV-2, the virus was killing the cells, and, and they were trying again and again. It was killing the cells. They could not uh, cultivate it. Finally, the French group find a way, and that's why it took so much time. But the the center was very pioneering uh, center. So, so Mitchell, what's what's your relationship to that center? And well, you know, it, you it's in, well, when that paper came out in 1990, it was it was really revolutionary. I mean, as you said, Alfredo, it was 1981 when when HIV first came on the scene, and for most of those first nine years, it was very much a gay disease or perceived to be a gay disease. So the idea that she did a commentary about the needs for women was was critical. Um, so we'd stayed in touch, obviously, after I'd met her, and and in 1993, I was offered the opportunity to to uh, go to South Africa to set up a condom social marketing project and. And um, actually, I moved to Durban, uh, South Africa. So you have to explain to us what's a condom social marketing well, so project. It, it actually, in many ways, it, it brings so many of Zena's points together. It's basically taking what we do in commercial marketing to sell us any kind of product and to try to get us to change our behaviors to want a condom, just like we might want a can of Coca-Cola. So using clever marketing, we, we brand the product. So instead of just giving out condoms at the clinic, we were actually marketing Lovers Plus. And Croatia was actually one of my first board members when I moved there and we set up the Society for Family Health, the South African organization. And what was amazing, so about six months later, I was back in New York and I went to see Zena and I was so excited. There was all this great activity happening. Uh, Mandela um, had not yet been elected president. So this is late 1993. The election was April 94. 
But I remember sitting in Zena's office and she started almost scolding me saying, you're focusing on the male condom? And she said, do you not know that there's now a product for women? And she opened her desk drawer and pulled out this, this handful of female condoms. It had been approved by the FDA in 1993 in May. And she said, Mitchell, you can't waste your time just on the male condom. You need to make this available to women. And with her was a PhD student named Erica Golub, and they basically said, you, you're, you can't go back there if you're not going to take on this issue. And as it happens, four or five months later, the election uh, took place, uh, the African National Congress uh, came into power, um, and a wonderful epidemiologist based in Durban was made the first head of the National AIDS Program in South Africa, none other than Koresha Abdul Karim. And so uh, Koresha leading the national government's HIV program and I coming back from New York uh, with this mandate from Xena, we created the first ever uh, barrier method task force in South Africa and with Koresha's support, we introduced the female condom in, I guess it must have been late 94, early 95. Xena organized how to get a shipment of supplies from the company. Um, but the, one of the most important things in all of Xena's work was yes, we needed to develop these new methods. Virucides, as they were first called, then microbicides, the female condom, gels, eventually a vaginal ring. But if you go back to that first commentary in 1990, Zena knew before any of us did that this was not about the products. This was not about the biomedical technology alone. It was about the programs to deliver them, working with women to help them understand their own lives, their own realities. And it was that that I think was most telling um, because she, she always knew we needed these new products, but she more than that knew we needed the programs to deliver them with a rights-based approach focusing on, you know, we talk all of the time rightly about client-centered and people-centered programs. I, it may just be my own revisionist history. I think Zena taught me that 30 years ago. Um, it was about the individual yeah, at the um, center. I was just thinking, Mitch, that, and, and going back to Alfredo's question, which is when we first started to deal with the AIDS pandemic, we're dealing with AIDS, a very visible, disease uh, that made young people very ill and young men very ill. That was what we were seeing. So prevention wasn't a high priority, but looking for treatments for AIDS patients, ensuring that this inevitable fatal condition could be transformed as it did around the mid 90s. But Xena was always about prevention and how can we prevent infection? So that's one part. But the other part of it was their ability to almost immediately, whatever the issue is, to it, it, they saw it first as the social challenge that was posed by whatever the epidemic or pandemic was, whether it was the Dutch famine or whether it was about HIV AIDS. What is the social issues there? And, and how can science uh, be an important step in addressing very complex social challenges? This issue of women and women's vulnerability is fundamentally a social challenge. It's about gender power disparities. And she never fooled herself that the microbicide or viricide was going to solve that. But what she saw, the science, is opening the door to addressing something, buying us time so that we can deal with those structural issues that underpin the disparities the vulnerabilities, the stigma, the discrimination, and all those longer-term things. And, and to me, that was the beauty of her work, that she could identify it in, in the social context, bring the science to it without losing sight to what was the root cause of the problem. 
Yeah, that's why I, I stressed, emphasized in my introduction that she was a, a public health person, uh, along a great scientist and the anti-apartheid activist. I mean, uh, so in practice, what has been the success of, of the female condom and microbicides? How have they been used? What have been their impact? Can, can we briefly... So maybe I can about? talk a little bit about the microbicides and Mitch can talk about the female condoms. So on the microbicide front, you know, the initial, maybe a good 18 years from the sort of early 90s through to about the uh, 2010, we'd been testing, evaluating repurposed products. And um, with the introduction, 2000 was part of a game changer where uh, the AIDS conference was held in Durban. And that's when we really saw global solidarity come together and this access to antiretroviral treatment. And, and we know that the treatment was not only life-saving, but that uh, subsequent studies showed us how treatment was also prevention. So the introduction of ARVs introduced a lot of us uh, to antiretrovirals and looking at its potential, already it was proven to reduce mother-to-child transmission. So its application for prevention and prevention in uninfected people was what we now call this whole field of PrEP, was what really opened the door for the UN 2016 declaration of ending AIDS as a public health threat. So that's the cumulative knowledge of the use of ARVs for treatment and prevention and this whole new technology of pre-exposure prophylaxis. So the Caprisa 04 trial was the first to describe this concept. Uh, it was followed uh, very shortly by several trials that tested daily oral formulations, and then the oral uh, PrEP use um, was uh, part of the WHO guidelines in 2016 for all people at risk of getting HIV, and now millions are using oral PrEP, and we've seen the dramatic impact in particular populations, in particular countries of oral PrEP use. Adherence is a bit of a challenge, and like all innovation, like all technologies, proof of concept beyond that, we see the innovation, and we're starting to see that innovation in terms of monthly rings, two monthly injections, and we can look forward to maybe even annual implants, maybe even six monthly injections. So that horizon that we see is almost equivalent to the contraceptive world where there are choices. And what we know is when you have choice, people are more likely to find something at particular times in their life or over that's going to work that they're going to use. And, and that, I think, um, Zina being able to see that uh, horizon, not just as, as something she was thinking about in 1990, but a reality to me was amazing. The piece Mitch mentioned earlier that it wasn't just proof of concept, but international global guidelines coming out on PrEP use and coming through, I think to me is amazing that you can plant a seed and that you've got a whole lot of warriors out there picking this up, translating it, making it happen, and the technologies just expanding and trying to meet the needs of everybody who's at risk, who wants to protect themselves, having an option out there that they can use that's safe and efficacious. And, and what, what's remarkable, yeah. you know, Krish, as you said, and, and now it's impossible to go to a meeting where someone doesn't draw the analogy between contraceptive choice and HIV prevention choice. And I 
you know, and, and people say it today in 2022 as if it's a new idea, and I have to remind them always, go back to Zena's article in 1990 in the American Journal of Public Health, because in her commentary, she actually said exactly that. She talked about the need to do in HIV what we had done in family planning, a range of products to meet women where they are with different methods. And no one method is going to answer these issues for everybody all the time. So the female condom all these years later still exists. It's, it's coming up on, I guess now it's 30th year uh, next year from the FDA approval, but it's now joined in this um, a basket of options that we can offer people with oral prep, as Croatia said, with an injectable. I'm excited because you know the, the vaginal ring was recommended by the World Health Organization last year. And just two weeks ago, it was approved by the South African Health Products Regulatory Agency, SAPRA. And in many ways, that is the, the first licensed uh, microbicide that, that Xena imagined in 1990. And now South Africa is getting ready to introduce it along with these other methods. And I think that was also an important piece. Uh, well, two, two important pieces. One, none of these methods replaces the other. The female condom didn't replace the male condom. Oral prep didn't mean condoms were useless. The vaginal ring and injectable prep don't mean that oral prep and condoms aren't useful for some people some of the time. And again, that was that, that vision of creating a range of options. And again, I, I attribute that to, to, to Zena way back. But the other thing, and this is about not only Zena and Mervyn, it's about Croatia and Slim. Um, it's about many others. I mean, when I think about the people who've influenced me in my career, including all four of them, uh, but I add in uh, Helen Reese and Glenda Gray and, and the list of South African researchers. And, and I actually think that that is also a great testament to what Zena and Mervyn imagined. Yes, they'd gone to Manchester and then to New York, but they were South Africans till the day they both passed away. And their legacy is a, an, an understanding that science and advocacy can coexist in the individual and the mentorship they have. There's not a South African researcher I know who wouldn't somehow connect to Zena and Mervyn's work. Um, and I'm not a researcher, um, uh, but I, I, I guess I, I'm friends with many. And I get to play one occasionally on podcasts, but um, if you work in HIV in the intersection of, of, of science and activism and civil rights and social justice, um, you, you are a mentee of, of, of Mervyn know, and Zena. You know, you know, which, uh, I, I think uh, in terms of testament, uh, your enthusiasm when you speak about her, you know, speaks more than thousand words about the, her shiny her personality, aspire, inspiring personality, and how much she still lives in your head. I mean, we can see that, and I think you can, you don't need to express it differently, <laughs> like how you look and how you talk about her. So I would like to conclude with asking you, I mean, if Zina was coming at the end of this uh, podcast, you know, what would she tell you? You know, what do we need to do? What's the next step? Just let me know what comes to your mind and then we'll close. So, Koresha, maybe you want to start. Yeah, I can tell you if we think that there is light at the end of the tunnel of HIV, there is no doubt Zina would have found another challenge and another issue. And for example, she was already doing that. It's you know, when the Zika outbreak, Ebola outbreak, now with sars she was always bubbling with ideas. And, and I kind of always take that, that, you know, she is, some people make a lifetime career out of a issue, a facet of an issue, 
No, Zena was just almost like an octopus. And I don't know if you saw this movie called The Octopus Teacher. And, and it reminded me so much of Zena. It's like many balls in the air and whatever it is, like what the, the world it has so many challenges that we have. And if she had another hundred lifetimes, I can believe that she would be taking each of those up. She never gave up the one thing, you know, she always saw it to the end but then had her eye on the ball. So right now when we face so many unfinished uh, epidemics and pandemics, she would remind you, no, you can't just jump from one thing to another. See this through, but then make take those 24 hours and make it work to take the other things on as well. And constantly look at ways of connecting the dots between the epidemics, whether it was HIV and TB or HIV and SARS-CoV-2. So I think she had a unique way of, and, and I think some of us have inherited that. She did this capacity building program. You know, people talk about when is the best time to plant a tree. <laughs> and Mitch talked about the South African capacity. Why does South Africa stand out? Because she had the vision to set up this Columbia University Southern African Fogarty AIDS training program. Over 600 people trained in that. She and Merv would, would come year after year with Sharon Schwartz. Well, Alfredo, you were part of that. You came and ran courses on advanced epidemiology. So it was this two-way, go to Columbia University, come to South Africa, go around, make sure you're not just training scientists, you're also training program managers and policy makers, and just do the multiplier effect. You know, she and Mervyn were in their 70s when they came to run the Africa Center. It was short of a director. That didn't phase them. It's in the middle of one of the deepest rural areas in South Africa. That didn't stop them from coming, doing this, spending two years of their lives when somebody else would be saying, oh, I'm going to put my feet up, no such thing. Mervyn and Zena work right to the very end. It's like, you can't just waste this oxygen on earth. You have to breathe it and make life count. <laughs> and how do you make that count? By, by leading a meaningful life. So that's it. I think she would say, are you just wasting oxygen or using this meaningfully? <laughs> and it's that's so, fantastic. so true. Yeah. And, and, and Chris, I was going to actually say something, you, exactly what you said. Um, connecting dots, both the issues and the people. Connecting the dots of, 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 of the, 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 the scientific issues, the, 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 the psychological, social issues, but also connecting the people. Um, they were magnetic and they would say, oh, do you not know that person? You should know that person and here's why. And you might think, why do I, I would never interact with that person. But Zena and Mervyn both would, would, would dot connect in that regard. Um, so I just, I totally agree with Carissa there. The other thing, which I think is, is probably quite similar is she would say, um, don't ever confuse progress with success. She would say if she looked at the female condom 30 years ago or the depivirine vaginal ring today, she'd say, that's great. What next? Um, never confuse it. Never think you've succeeded um, because you've made that, that, that piece of progress. She celebrated that progress for sure, but never confuse it and think, think the job is done. Um, and, and that's what I will take with it. Um, hopefully using the oxygen um, as well as, as, as the two of them both did. Well, again, I mean, she still lives in you and in many other people. I have to also have a, a personal... Uh, you know, uh, statement. When I, I became editor of AJPH and she was still using her email, after each issue, I would get an email 
hey Alfredo, and uh, a few words, very kind usually, and uh, a few words from Zina. And I mean, at each issue. And so she was indeed dealing with a, like an octopus, as you said. Yeah, absolutely. All right, we're going to close here. Koresha, Mitchell, thank you very much. I mean, for your time, your enthusiasm, your quality, because you are able to transmit so much in, as in your personalities, in addition to what you say. And I uh, enjoyed this uh, session very much. All right. Thank, thank you. Thank you so very much. <laughs>